Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Julia LaRoche Show. I'm so excited to introduce you to today's guest, Caleb Franzen, Senior Market Analyst at Cubic Analytics. Caleb is a 27-year-old who is putting out tons of great macro research. In this episode, we talk about all things related to the economy, the Fed, the market, inflation, Bitcoin, young investors, and much, much more. We also talk about how the Fed balancing the scales of its dual mandate of maximum employment and price stability will be a thin line for the central bank to walk in 2023, with the labor market being historically tight and inflation at historically elevated levels. This is why the Fed will focus on the labor market softening this year. As Caleb puts it, the labor market is the last box they're really looking to check to ensure that inflation is on a sustainable path lower. I really enjoyed this conversation with Caleb. I learned a lot and I think you will too. Caleb Franzen, Senior Market Analyst at Cubic Analytics. It is great to see you again and great to have you on the show. Welcome. Yeah, great to be here, Julia. Thanks for the invite. Really excited to be here. Well, I certainly enjoy following you on social media, Twitter in particular, and of course, subscribing to Cubic Analytics. And I think maybe we can just kind of kick off this conversation uh, since we are into 2023 with sort of your big picture macro view today. What is that for you, Caleb? Yeah, wow. So, um, you know, the, the macro dynamic really shifted in November of 2021 when the Fed announced tapering. If you look at kind of traditional risk assets during that time, even something like Bitcoin and crypto, everything peaked knowing that liquidity was going to be pulled out of the market. And so that was the primary theme in 2022, even though I would say 95 to 99% of market participants didn't expect the Fed to actually follow through in their process of rate hikes and removing liquidity from the market. I remember even in Q1, people were saying the Fed will never raise rates to 3%. Then it got raised to the Fed will never raise rates to 4%. And now the same saying is happening for 5%. And so as we think about the Fed going through this kind of historic tightening cycle, um, the market was caught completely offsides. And so if we think generally about kind of the Fed's playbook, historically, it's been that they're going to raise rates late into the credit cycle. And typically they raise rates for too long and they over tighten because they use backward looking indicators and data. And, you know, that's kind of just the, the silver handcuffs that, that they're placed in, right? I mean, they, they don't really have too many other options. They don't have a crystal ball like, uh, like none of us have. And so um, they over tighten for too long. They create some sort of uh, credit bust, essentially, basically uh, forcing a recession to slow down demand. And then to get us out of that recession, they stimulate like crazy. We see their balance sheet just continue to trend up and to the right over time and interest rates trend up, or excuse me, let me say it this way, from the top left to the bottom right over time. And so, um, you know, right now we've gone through that historic tightening cycle. And so as I kind of think about markets in 2023, um, it's a very simple framework, but I certainly um, don't have a very rosy picture for risk assets in this environment simply because we've undergone the fastest tightening cycle arguably ever, but certainly since the 80s under Paul Volcker. And so, um, you know, I think we haven't seen that kind of earnings recession yet. The labor market is historically tight. There are all of these different dynamics at play. And now a lot of the forward-looking economic indicators and data aren't necessarily showing this kind of rosy picture, if you will. And so, you know, I continue to be defensive in this environment. I was kind of late to that party in 2022 and really kind of shifted outright bearish in May. Um, but even still, right, I, I think I, I got out kind of faster than most did. And so as we think about 2023, I'm kind of just uh, playing the same game in this environment. Yeah, I think uh, in 2022, when you were kind of looking back, 
you were bearish, but even noted, I think in one of your notes that you weren't bearish enough. And uh, you're pointing yeah. out here that it's like, like you said, a, a not so rosy picture. Uh, I want to bring up another idea with you and explore a bit. Cause I, I think there's probably some folks who think that maybe the fed will stop tightening at this point. Mm, How right. do you understand the rebuttal to that narrative that's out there? So I think a lot of people are looking, and rightfully so, they're looking at the two-year treasury yield. And this is something that I picked up from Jeffrey Gunlack over a year ago. And um, he basically said that the, the Fed is going to follow the two-year. And so historically, when we see the two-year treasury yield invert versus the federal funds rate, typically the Fed is done in their tightening cycle, right? And they start because the bond market is forward-looking, so they're able to kind of forecast where the Fed is going and basically have the ability to skate to where the puck is, is going. And so... Uh, we have that inversion basically in place today. And so I think a lot of people are very um, optimistic that, hey, this means that the Fed is done raising rates. But if we look at kind of CME futures and different different markets and things of that nature, it's still very clear, even from a Fed rhetoric standpoint, that they're still going to be raising rates. And so the rebuttal that I have to that argument, which um, is actually very simple, right? If we If we look at the 70s and the early 80s, the Fed continued to raise rates in a high inflation regime, even after this inversion occurred. And so as we think about um, the year-over-year headline CPI being at 7.1%, I think median estimates for the December data right now are 6.6%, um, clearly we're, we're trending back towards the historic norm, but certainly um, th there's no case to be made that inflation is done, right? We're, we're decelerating, but that's basically as far as we can confirm it to be. And so the Fed right now is still on a mission to continue raising rates. I don't think they'll go much further. I think in my note, I said they're likely to only go another 0.5 to 1.25% higher. I think, you know, and that's, I'm just kind of providing that range because if we see inflation remain sticky, right, let's say we stay in the high sixes for the next three, four months, the Fed isn't going to be done raising rates. And so I don't have a crystal ball on inflation. So I'm kind of giving myself some wiggle room in that estimate. Um, but if we, if we look at, prior times where the US was fighting inflation, where the Fed was fighting inflation, they continue to raise rates after that inversion occurred, specifically citing the late 70s and the early 80s. Yeah. Um, just on the, the inflation part, uh, and I know you don't have a crystal, no one has a crystal ball, right? <laughs> help me understand your kind of view on inflation. Do you think we've seen peak inflation at this point? What are your thoughts there? So I was... Um, a pretty loud advocate, even when we got the June data that I thought inflation was perhaps still going to go higher. Um, but funny enough, I went out and I bought the Wall Street Journal that day, which is something that, you know, I've maybe done only a handful of times because headline of that paper was the 9.1% inflation print. And so I was like, you know, if this is the peak inflation, I want to, you know, frame this and I'll put it up on the wall. So I think at this point, you know, barring some, you know, major, uh, like supply shock for oil or something of that nature. I think uh, I think inflation is going to continue to moderate lower. So from from my perspective, it it all comes down to the pace from here on out. And so if we do get the decline from seven point one to six point six, which is what the market is estimating for the December data, I think we're continuing to trend in the right direction. So the Fed now is kind of forced to toe this line between not getting us to a state of deflation, right? Because from their model. Um, inflation and, e and economic growth are positively correlated. And so in their models, if we really do go into an economic downturn, which is certainly a possibility, maybe the Fed is able to engineer and kind of thread the needle here on a soft landing. But if we really do go into a recession, the conversation and the concerns shift towards um, being fearful of deflation. And so I'm not 
totally confident or sure that we're going to go in that direction yet, but I'm, I'm kind of aware of that in the, in the back of my mind that at least the Fed has to be cautious of that um, at the bare minimum. Do you think, do you think, uh, like, is the soft landing, is that even still on the table? Um, if you asked me this question in July or August, I would have said no. Um, but I think with the resilience that we've seen in the labor market, the comeback that we've seen in real GDP growth, there's a case to be made. Um, I, I would say at, at the present moment, the, the likelihood of a soft landing is probably the highest it's been, but I still put it at a, at a fairly low possibility. And yeah, I, I would probably just round it out by saying that because, you know, everyone was so concerned and, and everyone was saying, oh, we're in a recession. You can't change the data now. You can't change the definition of a recession. But now after those two, what I would consider to be anemic quarters of real GDP growth, um, we've seen two massive quarters. Um, at, well, we haven't gotten the official data yet for Q4, so that's coming out very soon. Um, but I think that the latest Atlanta um, GDP now trackers putting it in around like 3.5 or 3.7%, um, which is even higher than what we had for Q3. And so as we think about going from that anemic growth, which was just slightly negative at 0.6, like negative 0.6 or negative 0.9% to going all the way to three and a half, three 3.7%, that's a massive shift showing that there's still all this high level of demand within the economy simply because of how strong the labor market has been. Yeah. Well, speaking of the labor market, um, as we're recording this, it is Tuesday, uh, January 10th. We'll actually post it uh, today. We did get the jobs report um, last week. Oh, anything in the jobs report that kind of caught your interest uh, or is top of mind for you and kind of uh, helps you frame up your your macro outlook for the year? Sure. I think the big thing that stood out to me um, maybe there's three dynamics and I'll cover them quickly. The first was the decline in the unemployment rate. So we went from 3.7% in the prior month down to 3.5 and they actually revised the prior month down to 3.6. And so as we think about the labor market having a three and a half percent unemployment rate, that's historically low levels. I looked at um, the Federal Reserve's economic database and I could only find five months um, prior to this month. Um, since 1970, where the infl uh, where the unemployment rate was 3.5 percent, and it and it hasn't gone lower than that. And so, as we think about the 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 labor market being extremely tight, this is telling us unequivocally, it's been very rare for us to have um, this strong, this resilient, this dynamic of a labor market. And funny enough, I think all five of those prior um, occasions where we had three and a half percent unemployment rate have started since. Um, I think it was 2016 or 17. So they've all primarily been in the last five or six years. And so I thought that was very interesting. The second aspect that stood out to me was that we saw an increase in labor force participation and a decrease in the unemployment rate. Typically what happens is you would have some sort of positive correlation between the labor force participation rate. As people are out of the labor force and decide to come back in and start looking for work, they're officially counted as being unemployed. And so as more people enter the labor force and start looking for work, you would expect them, or let me say it this way, you would expect to see the unemployment rate go up. But we actually saw the exact opposite. The unemployment rate went down, which to me just reflects even more so this, the strength and dynamic nature of the labor market in the current um, environment. The third thing that stood out to me was the continued deceleration in um, average hourly average hourly earnings. And so that's obviously something that the Fed is, is hoping to see. 
Um, but again, I think a lot of that is really going to come down to the composition of the labor market, which sectors are um, seeing higher demand, this, that, and the other. Um, and I just haven't had a chance to go into that data to really kind of parse through it yet. But from a high level perspective, those three things are what really stood out to me in the uh, NFP data last week. Yeah. Um, so it sounds like there's um, there's there's resiliency uh, in, in the labor market. I guess kind of tying it together, what do you think it means for the Fed? So the Fed can't, and this is so like uh, backwards thinking, right? Because I, I don't necessarily view the Fed as some like evil organization by any means, but um, the, the Fed can't be too happy about seeing the unemployment rate be this low. Because as we think about what they're trying to do to fulfill their dual mandate, we have inflation that is um, completely detached from their target. And we have the labor market that is basically fulfilled in terms of maximum slash full employment. And so the Fed is trying to balance the scales here, right? So they're trying to reduce aggregate demand to re-equilibrate the market at a lower equilibrium price, aka bring inflation down. And so they're trying to do that through three primary methods. The first is by creating an inverse wealth effect. That was the dynamic that we saw throughout the entirety of 2022. They're trying to increase the cost of capital to make it um, more difficult to borrow, more more costly to borrow. They've certainly done that. The one thing that they haven't done yet is to really reduce aggregate income by softening the labor market. And so for me, when I talked about my 2023 outlook, that was kind of a big point for me is because I really think now that's kind of the last um, the, the last box that they're really looking to check to ensure that inflation is on a, on a sustainable path lower. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned um, at the top of this, your kind of view for the year 2023, like how it's like a not so rosy outlook. Um, like, let's talk about maybe more of like the markets. Uh, sure. Where do you, where do you want to be? Where do you want to kind of avoid? Uh, what are you kind of paying attention to as relates to the markets? Sure. So um, let me say this first. I think, you know, one of the first things I check every day is what's happening with the three-month treasury yield and the two-year treasury yield. And then I'll go all the way out to the far end of the curve and look at the 30-year. Once I do that, I'm pretty much looking at equity, seeing how they're performing. And then I check Bitcoin to see how that's going, because I want to get a sense for how risk assets are performing in the market based on those dynamic changes in yields. And so um, for me, I think it's kind of funny, you know, you had like Ray Dalio uh, several years back, uh, kind of dunking on cash, cash is trash. Um, and, you know, 2000, and a lot of people, you know, accepted that and cheered that kind of dynamic. And and Ray Dalio is, you know, a phenomenal all-time legendary investor. Um, and I think he's kind of walked back those statements since because, you know, if you have cash, you can go into a money market fund today um, with a zero minimum investment and lock in a 4.3%, 4.4% yield. And so, you know, that's already something that I started to do last week in my Schwab account because I was like, hey, this is, you know, essentially free money with zero capital risk. So I'll go ahead and take it. Um, so I think for me, cash, again, is going to be the theme. But I think simply just because of my demographic being 27 years old, um, I remember talking with you, I think, last July or August and saying, um, you know, if you're under the age of 35 or 40, you should always be a net buyer of assets for any given year. And certainly within that year, you can be a seller, you can shift your portfolio allocations, you can reduce risk, but nonetheless, you should still be a net buyer of assets. And it's okay to simultaneously think that asset prices are going to go lower and still keep buying them, 
right? And so um, I think that's still kind of the playbook for me. I have a handful of um, individual stocks that I've already been buying. I sold um, quite a bit of my exposure in December, um, both for tax reasons and because I felt like it was just a good time to take some chips off the table with where the market was um, and just kind of hit reset once again. And so for this year, um, I'm going to continue to kind of play on that theme. Um, so long as the Fed is keeping financial conditions tight and trying to fight inflation, I just see general headwinds for asset prices, um, particularly for equities. And so, you know, we will continue to have these bear market rallies, which I think are going to set investors up for an opportunity to reduce risk, shift their portfolio allocations, and just kind of rethink their overall strategy. Um, so yeah, if you have follow-up questions on that, I'm happy to clarify anything. Oh. Absolutely. Yeah. And I do remember that conversation. Gosh, we would have that probably would have been, you're right, August or even July of last year uh, when I was guest hosting uh, for um, Pomp when they had the best business show. Let's explore that a bit because that was actually really interesting. You're 27 years old. Um, you're talking about like how younger cohorts of investors should be net buyers of assets. I mm -hmm. want to flesh that out a bit because I do think it's important. And you know, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show, not only do you put out great research and I follow you, they're frankly, I feel like there aren't that many like young folks putting out macro research. Maybe I'm missing it. I don't know. I could be missing it, but it's, I think I'm, you're probably the youngest person I've had on this program and I'm a millennial too. I mean, I'm older than you, but um, yeah, I guess, I don't know if you're Gen Z or millennial. I think millennial, right? You're probably the youngest. I'm millennial. Yeah. I'll, yeah. We'll, we'll go with that. Yeah. You're millennial. So let's, let's flesh that out a bit. So yeah, I've noticed that as well. There's, there's a couple of people who I know, I think Dylan LeClaire puts out fantastic kind of macro content, especially for his age. Um, but I think you're right. Most people who are kind of getting into markets are just gung-ho on, on taking risk and investing and 10Xing their capital and things like that. And um, I don't know, I think maybe a lot of that has to kind of just do with, um, I, I don't know what it has to do with, but I've certainly noticed it as well, right? You don't get a lot of people really kind of highlighting and talking about macro. And so um, for me, I just became macro obsessed, um, during college. And funny enough, I was a computer science major when I first started in college. And as an elective, I took an intro to investing course. Cause I had always been, um, interested in markets and the economy, but you know, it was just kind of so overwhelmed about where to start that I just never did. So I was like, I oh, may as well, I'm in college now I'll take this intro to investing class. Two weeks into the course, I changed my major to finance. Um, and so, you know, it's just kind of a funny way to get involved in, in, in like shifting my path a little bit. And so I became really interested in monetary policy, probably back, it was probably at the end of my first year in college. So that would have been back in um, 2014, I think. And, uh, you know, since then, I just, I became kind of a, uh, uh, an advocate of Peter Schiff and, you know, how he approaches markets and focusing on the Fed and monetary policy. Because from my perspective, I saw like um, the currency is the lifeblood of the economy. And so if, if someone's blood is unhealthy, it's very likely to be the case that the rest of their body isn't going to be healthy as well. And so um, if you fix the currency, you can fix hopefully some of the fundamental problems um, within that economic system. And so um, I really kind of started my approach with investing from this very traditional perspective, but with an emphasis on macro and monetary policy. And, um, you know, I've just kind of fallen deeper and deeper down that rabbit hole over time, I guess. Yeah. Okay. So I have a few follow on questions. Um, all right. So what do you think the younger generations, we'll say our generation, millennials, uh, maybe Gen Z, what do mm -hmm. you think are some of the pitfalls or mistakes that they might make in environments like this? Um, and yeah, I'd just love to hear uh, your thoughts on that. 
I think generally for our age group and for maybe even the Gen Z is that, you know, uh, FOMO is just kind of in your face all the time because of social media. Everyone has access to some sort of equivalent of like a Bloomberg terminal and charting software. And so you're seeing things that are, you know, doubling in a bear market, which kind of really gives a lot of people hope, I think. Um, and so when you're kind of looking at friends or strangers on the internet talking about, you know, their top 10 portfolio holdings and how they've increased their wealth by, you know, some crazy magnitude over the last two years. Sure, those cases exist, but I think people think it, it's um, easy to replicate and they get kind of uh, lost in the sauce, if you will, as, as a millennial term for, um, you know, how they should be structuring their portfolio, how they should be looking at risk and how to manage that risk going forward. And so it's been a wake up call for a lot of people who I've gotten connected with in 2022 who are saying, yeah, we had never paid attention to macro before this year. And in my mind, I was like, oh my gosh, like how, how have you made it this far even? Right. And so um, it's, it's uh, I think the dynamics in 2022, it was a terrible year for everyone, including myself financially. Um, but I think in a lot of ways, it's good to have those kind of reality check moments that wake people up. And I think so many people have leveled up over the course of the last 12 months in terms of their knowledge of macro, of monetary policy, and how liquidity really impacts market conditions. And that theme is going to continue to play out, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. Wait, sorry, I missed the last part that you said. Um, just that... Uh, essentially like people have really learned how liquidity dynamics really impact market conditions and, and financial asset prices. And so, um, you know, that was really the theme over the last 12 months. And I think that theme is going to kind of carry out, um, for a little bit longer this year. Mm -hmm. Um, do you, let me ask you this. Do you, do you think like maybe this year, do you think we'll see capitulation amongst, um, maybe younger cohorts of investors this year. I don't know like if they're, if they're just kind of holding on to some of the things they bought when things were going up and up uh, in the, you know, 20, call it like latter half of 2020 uh, into 2021. Uh, what are your kind of thoughts there for the investing class? Yeah, so I think at this point when we've had such significant drawdowns, right? I think like Bitcoin at one point was down 75, 78% from the all-time highs. If people are still holding, which so many people are, Right. If you look at coins that haven't moved in the past year, past six months, if you look at coins moving off exchanges, it's very clear to see if you look at, you know, wallets of, you know, 0.1 Bitcoin or higher, one Bitcoin or higher, they're all just trending up and to the right. And so, um, you know, from that perspective, I think people's conviction hasn't necessarily been lost. Um, I would say, especially for the Bitcoin market, I don't know about the rest of crypto just because I haven't looked at that data. And I think for stocks, you know, people might sell things, but then they'll shift immediately into something else. And so what I would say is we've, we've certainly had, and I thought about this a lot last year, and I kind of came up with this like bifurcated view of capitulation, which is you have like an enthusiasm capitulation, and then you have a price capitulation. And so I think we've certainly had that enthusiasm capitulation. I think that really occurred probably between May and July of last year. And now um, we're kind of just twiddling our thumbs until we really get a price capitulation. It may not come. So it, it's hard to say for sure, but I think um, unquestionably we've had an enthusiasm capitulation and, um, you know, we cans, the soft investors, the people were, who are just here looking to make a quick buck have really kind of been pushed out of the market, which is a great way for us to build a solid foundation going into the next bull market whenever that does eventually start. Um, but those are kind of my thoughts generally on, on capitulation dynamics, if you will. 
You know, when you talk about those capitulation dynamics, I, I like that, the enthusiasm capitulation. Are you referring to Bitcoin? Are you referring to like broader like equity markets? Where, where are you kind of like, what are, where are you referring to? I would just say generally for risk assets, right? And so um, certainly there isn't an, an enthusiasm capitulation for um, energy investors, right? Like th th those people are just, uh, they're popping bottles of champagne lately. Um, and so I think with equities, you have a bit more of room for general kind of rotation dynamics. Um, with Bitcoin and crypto, I mean, the correlations are just too tight in that kind of specific sector of the market, if you will. So you know, you're not going to have some massive rotation where a coin is going to go up, you know, 50% over the next uh, three months while the rest of the market is down 25%, broadly speaking, you know, like, yeah, sure. You might have some of those one-off events with 20,000 different cryptocurrencies out there, but you know, it's just, it's basically just gambling at that point. And so I think specifically, I would say we've, we've had that enthusiasm capitulation for Bitcoin and crypto, and then generally speaking for risk assets in the stock market as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. I want to, I want to go a little bit back again and revisit something because I've been taking notes as you've been talking and I, I'm so thankful for your time. You were talking about when you first got into macro. So back in college, uh, when you started getting interested in this and, um, kind of understanding the world through this kind of lens of like mm -hmm. the currency being the lifeblood. And if it's not healthy, you know, the broader, I guess body isn't healthy or I, I don't want to like butcher it. You can explain it further. I want to hear a little bit more on that and uh, let's kind of extrapolate your thoughts there. Sure. Um, yeah. So I've, I've held that belief for a very long time. And um, in 2022, I read a book called Lords of Easy Money. Um, I think it's by Christopher Leonard. And it was a fantastic um, book, just kind of going over monetary policy dynamics, just uh, a real kind of historical overview and then really tying it into um, events that have occurred basically uh, post the financial crisis. And um, I thought it was just an excellent novel that really kind of cemented um, that view of mine in a lot of different ways. And so just kind of thinking about it, generally speaking, um, interest rates, which are controlled by the Fed in a lot of ways, is essentially the cost of capital. And if capital has zero cost, basically meaning it's not scarce, it's going to flow to all different areas of the market in a free market that maybe don't necessarily warrant it being there, right? So um, basically uh, a inefficient allocation of a scarce resource. And so if that resource is no longer scarce, it's going to be allocated inefficiently. And so fundamentally, if you have companies that don't deserve the money, essentially, because they're not um, generating a return or providing a valuable service or a good to their end customers and fulfilling some level of demand, then that company might expand its labor force, hire a bunch of people who maybe, you know, aren't really doing too much. And, you know, in an eventual market decline, all those people are going to get fired. That company is going to fail, whatever the case may be, once that cost of capital starts to become uh, starts to rise and that capital becomes more scarce, right? And so we already saw a lot of those dynamics take place um, in 2022. Um, a lot of I know Coinbase earlier this morning announced that they're laying off another 20% of their workforce. Um, and, you know, Coinbase is just essentially burning money from a profitability standpoint. And so um, when you have zero cost of capital, it essentially allows um, a fundamental layer of the economic system to be built basically on um, sand on an ocean, right? And so as, as that kind of dynamic takes place, and then eventually as the Fed starts raising interest rates, 
that's the that's the tide coming in and knocking over the castle, right? So, um, right, fundamentally, I do view the cost of capital and therefore interest rates and therefore the actions of the Federal Reserve as, you know, the lifeblood of the economic system, which is going to have potentially severe impacts on the rest of the broader economy, simply because of how money flows within the system. Yeah. So like, what's your kind of diagnosis in of the existing system? <laughs> so we essentially went from one extreme to the next, right? Because if, if we look at a lot of different um, yields on treasuries, mortgage rates, they haven't been this high since uh, 2007, 2008. And so, um, and prior to that, I don't think that they had been that high since, I don't even know exactly, but maybe 2000, 2001. And so um, we went from a basically zero interest rate policy for a very long time where the Fed was just continuously increasing their balance sheet. I know we went through a brief period where the balance sheet was declining, um, more specifically in 2018-19. But generally, the Fed has just continued to provide and pour liquidity into the markets. Now we're in the exact opposite scenario. And so um, going back to the book that I had just referenced, which was Lords of Easy Money, there was this great quote from um, the former head of the Kansas City Fed, um, whose name was Thomas Honig, um, or I should say is Thomas Honig. And um, he was kind of talking about the zero interest rate policy. And he had a quote, this was from 2016. And I'll just kind of paraphrase what the quote was. But at the time, the Fed was steadily raising interest rates by 0.25%. Every other meeting, they forecasted to the markets that this was the path that they were going to take. And he came out and said kind of vehemently when he was no longer part of the Fed that, you know, those actions um, are going to have severe repercussions because when the entire uh, economy and financial system is built around a zero rate, he basically said it's not going to be costless as you start to raise those interest rates, essentially insinuating that damage is going to be done because he said uh, capital was allocated based on those zero rates and the expectation of continued zero rates. And so as soon as that kind of cost of capital goes up, we start to see those repercussions kind of um, reverse course in a lot of ways. And so um, I might be rambling there, so I'm sorry, but um, you know, generally, as uh, that was what your question was. So, as we think about right now, that cost of capital is historically high in this existing market, and so the longer rates stay at these elevated levels, even if the Fed pauses from here, the cost of capital is still historically expensive, and so those dynamics are going to continue to impact market conditions the longer they stay elevated. Yeah. Um, okay, and I know um, <laughs> just. <laughs> I really, no, you're, you're so great at explaining things. I know from reading your newsletters and following you on social, you follow Bitcoin very closely. Yep. So in light of all the recent events, <laughs> do you think, I mean, where are we going from here? Is Bitcoin dead? Is it going to go to zero? Is it going to stay around? I think it's probably 16, what is it? I don't know, 16,900 range right now. It's kind of been there mm-hmm. for a while, I suppose. Or do you see a catalyst for it to go higher? Let's kind of dig into your view on Bitcoin. Yeah, so I, I certainly don't think that Bitcoin is dead, but it, it's certainly been under pressure from a price perspective. But um, fundamentally, you know, I view Bitcoin as a, as a monetary network. And that monetary network is functioning as perfectly as it was when the price was 68000 So from that kind of fundamental standpoint, no, I don't think Bitcoin is dead. I think speculating on Bitcoin right now is dead. It can be revived, um, you know, as as it always has been. Um, But, you know, fundamentally, Bitcoin, uh, I think it's been pronounced dead, you know, thousands and thousands of times. And every time it always comes back a little bit stronger. And so I think if you told 
someone like, you know, if we had a time machine and we could go back eight years ago and tell an investor that, hey, Bitcoin is going to fall 75% and it's going to be at $17,000. Like what would that investor do? They would put their entire net worth and savings into Bitcoin, right? So, you know, fundamentally, um, it's like the, the fact that we're staying strong around 17,000 Bitcoin volatility is at all time lows on a historic basis. Um, that in and of itself, I think is a major accomplishment. And you might kind of be thinking to yourself, Caleb, you're just looking at the silver lining. Your asset has just fallen 75%, but you're saying, look how strong it is. But I think when you, you, it's vital to kind of contextualize it in that framework. And so I think for me, I certainly think Bitcoin is going to be, um, falling a little bit lower, um, but not necessarily that it's going to fall lower immediately, right? And so every market is going to go through different cycles of a, of a general trend. And so, we're, you know, the trend over the over the course of the last 12 months is certainly to the downside. We'll have counter trend moves or basically have a bear market rally or a relief rally. And then I expect that kind of trend continuation, the third stage of that process to happen thereafter. And so for me, I've been pretty vocal um, basically since June or July with a kind of price target range between 10 and 13,000. Um, and, you know, I think that $13,900 range is really where my uh, target starts. And the reason why I came up with that, just looking from a price structure perspective, that was the monthly close for December of 2017. And so I think that there is a lot of kind of price memory there from the prior cycle peak, even though it wasn't um, the actual peak price was closer to 19,000, but that monthly close there, I think is significant. And so for me, I see that 13,900 level as a, basically a magnet for price. Would that be like a entry point for you? Or is that just kind of like where you kind of see it dropping? So um, I sold all of my Bitcoin after going through a pretty significant drawdown, but I think I sold um, the majority of it around 21 or 22,000. And then I started buying again in the 17 to $21,000 range. So basically buying below uh, my former selling price. And so I haven't sold any of that new Bitcoin, if you will. I think I've only reinvested about seven or 8% of what I had initially had in Bitcoin. Um, and basically since the whole FTX situation, I've, I've paused my dollar cost average purchases just to kind of let the dust settle, if you will. Um, you know, I think now that more time has kind of gone on now, there's another worry about DCG and Genesis and Silvergate and, you know, the whole nine yards grayscale. Um, but I think from my perspective, I, I think for me, it's more of a time factor than a price factor for when I'll get back in the market. And so I'd be comfortable um, probably to start buying again here in the first quarter. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess kind of like if we kind of start to round out the conversation, um, you know, kind of just going back to being a millennial who's into macro, um, we just <laughs> say like there are very few, it seems, but I do think like you were pointing out everyone's focused on macro these days. Like, yep. I find that even the folks like years ago who used to say, oh no, don't, I don't, I don't really care much about like the macroeconomic environment, like investors like that all even write about uh, macro in their letters. What are kind of the things that you are most paying attention to? Uh, it could be more in the near term or even a little bit further out. What are the things that are going to be on your radar from like a macro, macro perspective? Pretty much just the labor market. I'll certainly be, you know, monitoring inflation dynamics, but I think, you know, for me in my note to investors, uh, my basically sharing my 2023 market outlook, I provided like five or six charts that historically have, you know, essentially a hundred percent accuracy of predicting recessions. And so those recessions can occur, 
basically between six and 20 months down the line after they flash. A lot of them started to flash in October or the third quarter of 2022. Some are flashing today, right? This, that, and the other. And so for me, it's like, you know, there's a high probability of a recession in 2022 and 2023. I know that's really kind of the consensus and markets hardly ever follow the consensus. Um, but I think for me watching the labor market, which is already a lot of backward looking data, but looking at certain rates of change. So one thing in particular that I've been really focused on is the year over year rate of change in the unemployment rate. So it's, it's kind of um, odd to think about because you're essentially taking a second derivative to analyze the rate of change of a percentage. Um, but I think it's really uh, important to be doing that. And so if, if we look at that rate of change, it's still very negative on a year over year basis. I think it's down about 11%. But um, earlier in 2022, it was down about 40%, 30%. And so we're kind of seeing this V-shaped dynamic in terms of the rate, the year over year rate of change in the unemployment rate. And so as we trend back towards a 0% rate of change in the unemployment rate, I think that's going to be a very kind of telling sign for where the economy is headed, where the labor market is headed, what's happening with aggregate demand, and just kind of naturally, or generally speaking, how the economy is developing and unfolding. And so even still, that's kind of backward looking data, but I think that rate of change is going to kind of guide us to where the general trend is moving, if you will. Got it. Um, and also like just thinking of your own content diet, if you will, the things that you're just mentioning, like some of the things you look at, but you also mentioned in this conversation, uh, like a recent book that you read, um, share a bit more of like your content diet. Like what's, what do you like to read? Um, it could be, you know, books that are interesting or newsletters or po even podcasts. Like what are kind of some of the things that you've enjoyed reading or found fascinated that maybe some of the folks who are watching and listening, uh, might benefit from? Sure. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, I'm a I'm a content junkie, and I think um, like most millennials, my focus for content has shifted kind of away from books and towards um, like non traditional outlets, right? So YouTube, podcasts, Instagram, whatever the case is, right? Um, so for me, it's funny. I'm always so I used to be such an avid book reader, and I've really kind of fallen off. And I I still have this like wide eyed approach to books, so I'll buy things and then. I'll read, you know, three, four chapters. I'm like, wow, this is so good. And I won't pick it up for another six months. And so um, I did that with um, Ben Bernanke's kind of uh, memoir, if you will. Uh, I think it's uh, Courage to Act is the name of the book. And it was really fascinating, but I've only gotten like halfway through and it's been a year since I first purchased it. So I need to pick that up again. Um, Lords of Easy Money was fantastic. It was a great read. Um, there's another one, uh, I'm blanking on it, but it's something alchemy. I'll get you the name after this. Um, in terms of newsletters, I'm trying to think. Uh, mostly I'll follow um, kind of certain sections that aren't really under my radar too much. So like in my own personal newsletter, each one is really focused on the macro economy, the stock market and Bitcoin. I'm sharing different dynamics in those three spaces. Um, so one that um, I really like, there's this guy named uh, Nick Shaw, and I forget the name of his newsletter, but he posts a great uh, real estate and housing market newsletter. Mm -hmm. And so for me, with that kind of being a little bit out of my remit, but certainly impacting overall market conditions, that's been really helpful for me. Um, in terms of podcasts, I've watched a bunch of yours. I've watched a bunch of Hugh Hendry's conversations. The Meb Faber podcast is one that I always recommend to new or old investors, just because I think he, he shares really valuable insights and has great guests on. Um, the Macro Compass, um, I think that's um, 
Alfonso. Um, Yeah, he shares really great information both on Twitter and um, in his newsletter. And then I think my favorite podcast I never miss, um, I'll give them a plug, even though they have no idea who I am. Um, it's the guys at Ritholtz Wealth Management. Um, they're just fantastic. So I, I watch the compound religiously, um, the compound and friends. If anyone is involved with markets, I highly recommend listening to Josh Brown, Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson. Cause they're just, they're fantastic. They're professionals in the space veterans. So they crush it. Yeah. They're great guys. And, um, I had, uh, I had Josh Brown on the pod, um, last year and I, I too am with you. I love the compound and friends. So they're just I'll, such I'll great characters that you enjoy it. Um, I've <laughs> enjoyed, um, you know, having this conversation with you and I, of course I enjoy uh, reading your newsletter. So I want to give you a few minutes. Um, I'll give you a few minutes for like any parting thoughts or just, you know, things that may have come to mind for you that you want to share with the audience. Also let them know where they can find you on social media and of course, uh, where they can find and access uh, your research. Thanks, Julia. I appreciate it. It's been a blast coming on. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. So uh, this was fantastic. Um, I guess for parting thoughts, uh, it I hate to come on here and kind of sound bearish because I'm actually very optimistic. And so I think particularly for younger investors or people even in their 40s, we should really be viewing this kind of market environment as a glaring opportunity. Certainly things can go lower from here. Um, and this was, you know, a, a very similar theme that I shared with you in last August, right? I fully expect to see asset prices go lower and I'll be buying them on the way down patiently, selectively in key portfolio holdings that I want to hold for the long run. And so I think for a lot of investors, it's all about right now finding the, what those core positions are in your portfolio, whether it's Bitcoin, Cardano, Amazon, uh, Netflix, right? You can look at... Um, this is one for for everyone watching. Look at waste management stocks right now, either WM, RSG, or WCN. Those are some of my favorite companies because of their utility-like exposure, and they pay great dividends as well. Um, so for me, right, I'm I'm really using this market opportunity, or I'm really using this market environment as an opportunity to buy great companies that I want to hold for the future. And so, um, you know, as asset prices go lower, I'll continue to get more and more wide-eyed about my portfolio and and allocating um, my scarce capital because capital is very scarce right now with interest rates being so high. Um, in terms of plugs, definitely check me out on Twitter. We have a really fast-growing community over there. Um, it's just at Caleb Franzen. And then my newsletter is growing like bananas lately, uh, cubicanalytics.substack.com. We just crossed 3,000 free subscribers. I do a free newsletter every week covering macro, the stock market, and Bitcoin. So if you have an interest in one of those things or all three of them, there's going to be something in there for you. So uh, definitely check that out, cubicanalytics.substack.com. I love it. Well, Caleb Franzen, Senior Market Analyst at Cubic Analytics, I thank you so much for being so generous with your time and ideas. And great to see you as always. Thank you so much. Thanks, Julia. Hey, everyone. I really hope you enjoyed that video. Be sure to hit that like button, the subscribe, and that bell so you won't miss any new videos.